Today's episode of The Weeds is brought to you by Harry's Razors. Go to harrys.com and enter promo code WEEDS for $5 off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code WEEDS at checkout to get 10% off. The following podcast contains explicit language. The nanny state policies of the Sarah Cliff administration. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. With me as usual, Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. Hey, Matt. Hey. We're here in the in the wake of a, a stunning New Hampshire primary. I guess not totally stunning from the perspective of what the polls had said it was, was going to happen. It was expected on the morning, but a year, two years ago, it's very surprising. Can I, can I have, make an announcement right. quickly before we go into this? That's stunning. Uh, it, it'll be a stunning announcement. So the, the long-rumored, much-anticipated Ezra Klein Show podcast, the interview podcast I've mentioned here a couple times before, where I've piloted some interviews here a couple times before, has actually launched. It is its own podcast. You can find it on iTunes or SoundCloud or Overcast. The first interview is with Rachel Maddow from MSNBC. It's a really, I think, a really interesting interview. I had a lot of fun getting to talk to her. We talked about her background as a radical AIDS activist. We talked about sort of what she thinks is activism and what isn't. We talked about why she doesn't read op-ed pages, her favorite graphic novels, when to neuter a dog. We really we really spanned a range of topics. So I hope you listen. I hope you subscribe. I hope you rate it on iTunes, just as I hope you listen, subscribe, and rate The Weeds on iTunes. But with that, back to, back um, to Matt. So, so New Hampshire, it was, you know, uh, Trump won, Bernie won. They won by, by large margins. Bernie won by, was it 20 points? It was... Yeah, yeah it 20 was, some points. It was crushing. The he, only demographic group that Hillary Clinton won, uh, the only income group she won was over $200,000. Yeah. It, it was really, it was really a And Sanders won, I, I think importantly for how we think going forward, he won college-educated voters, but also non-college voters, which meant that even though New Hampshire is a sort of a classic, what they call like like wine track state in a Democratic primary. He won the votes of people who are more typical of more sort of Midwestern states, more more downscale states. So it was a worse loss than Hillary Also Rogers did really well that. among women, which yes. is something that maybe was not as expected. That yes. There's a big gender divide in Iowa, but we kind of saw that right. disappear in and New Hampshire. Trump not only won, which was in the polls, but the guy who finished second was John Kasich, who... <laughs> Has no real. <laughs> so, John Kasich, after winning in New Hampshire, flew to Michigan. <laughs> as A you do. lovely state. I, I should just say for for people who maybe are not as well versed in the primary calendar as, as we are, the Democrats Nevada comes next. Does it come next for the Republicans? No, for Republicans, South Carolina, South Carolina and, then Nevada. Nevada. and then Nevada. Anyway, so it's not Michigan. You don't go to Michigan next. <laughs> His whole plan was to make this stand in New Hampshire. But then he doesn't seem to have it. Worked. Now it's a stand in Michigan. I guess. The, the ultimate plan isn't clear yet. But right. So it was the worst possible outcome from a like stop Trump viewpoint. Well, well, it's the worst possible outcome also because, and it's worth noting this, Marco Rubio did not come in second and he did not come in third. Did he come in fourth he or did fifth? Not. I, I don't, he came in fifth. It's just after fifth. Jeb Bush. There's still a, there's, yeah, there's some still possibility. Okay. Right? He's currently in fifth place at the taping. But, but I don't know if you could demand a, a recount for the five four <laughs> slots. <laughs> but this is considered sort of momentum wise, and after his kind of glitch of the debate, 
a sort of total disaster for Rubio's campaign. And what it means in a very practical sense is Jeb Bush has as strong a claim to remaining in the race as Rubio does. And Christie didn't really place. But if Christie drops out, it isn't at all clear that he will endorse Rubio or, or that his people go to Rubio. So the hope for Rubio was that he had this 3-2-1 strategy and that he was going to finish third in Iowa, second in New Hampshire, and then first in South Carolina. But three, five something doesn't actually make any sense. And so his whole strategy has been shot to shit. Yes, it's bad. It's not good to be Marco Rubio today. Three, four, five strategy is the new. So can I, so last week on the weeds we did a special Iowa caucus episode which caused some consternation among my co-hosts here who who felt that I was betraying the sacred trust that the weeds listeners have placed in us. And, and so we've come up with a, a bit of a hybrid this week cuz these results are really really interesting. But they're interesting not just in a kind of what happened in New Hampshire way, but they're interesting in a broader theoretical context. And so we're going to try to look at them and ground them in something a little bit deeper and something we've actually been wanting to talk on the show about for a while, which is a paper that Jonathan Rausch wrote. And, and, and Rausch is a scholar at Brookings. And it's called Political Realism, How Hacks, Machines, Big Money and Backroom Deals Can, wait for it, Strengthen American Democracy. And the thesis of... Rausch's paper. And it's really interesting. It'll be in our show notes. You can also find it at, at Brookings or, or search it on the internet. The, the thesis of Rausch's paper is that a multi-decade long sort of ideological tilt in both parties against political machines, against political professionals, and towards what we call kind of transparency and good government and clean government has actually created a very dysfunctional governmental system. And that one of the problems he's trying to point out is that there's almost no space to talk about this because the victory of this kind of new political, you know, sort of classically progressive, not in the, the left-right sense, but in the in the how government runs sense ideology, it is one so completely that even talking about political machines or talking about the possible benefits of things like earmarks or backroom deals is considered something you, you can't even say. But to sort of frame our conversation, I want to mention two things that Rauch puts up at, at some length because I think the New Hampshire results were, were an example of both. And one thing he talks about is the decline in political machines. And, and he, he defines political machines quite broadly. They, they might be party organizations. They might not be party organizations. For the purposes of New Hampshire, they are party organizations. And, and what we saw was the party organization of the Republican Party was lockstep arrayed against Donald Trump and it lost. The party organization of the Democratic Party was lockstep arrayed against Bernie Sanders and it lost. There is a, a real deep weakness of political parties in evidence this year. But the other thing that he talks about is this difference between what he calls and what other researchers have called amateurs and political professionals, with the idea being that political professionals or politicians or political hacks are seen as being somehow dirty. They're seen as being corrupt. They're seen as representing a system that is intrinsically transactional and that has failed. And people kind of hate them. People hate politicians, whereas amateurs who come in and are more ideological are more here. They're more pure in their politics. They don't want to compromise. They don't take money from the wrong people. They are seen as being more deeply noble. And Rush's big point is that the catalytic interaction of the weakening of political parties 
and the increasing distaste for political professionals has created a, a class of more informal, more amateur players who are – and amateur, I want to say, does not mean you have not been in politics before. It just means you're coming in from a different direction. The way Roush frames it is amateurs have, like, one particular goal. They have one issue. They're fighting on one thing. They're not thinking typically about the long haul, whereas political professionals operate in this system of – rewards and building this party and like this continued ideology that stretches yeah. out over multiple battles. The amateurs typically in the way he frames it are kind of like one time fighters and that really changes their orientation. And that, that's exactly right. And, and I'll end on this. It, Trump and, and Sanders are both within this typography amateurs. And Roush's view is that this stuff feels like fixing politics to people. And both Trump and Sanders are running in some way on an argument that they can fix politics. Trump, because he can't be bought. Um, Sanders, because he'll destroy the, the power of big money with a, a political revolution. But that the mixture of weak parties and these much more principle-based, anti-transactional, anti-political candidates is a root cause of current dysfunction. And the more we respond to that dysfunction by tilting in that direction, the worse that dysfunction is going to get. Yeah, so one of the big things Roush ideas in this paper is the problem is how we've been approaching campaign finance, that we make it more and more difficult to donate to political parties because we think, you know, major corporations shouldn't have as much influence. It should be more about smaller donors and smaller donations. So one of the things, as someone who hadn't thought, of, I think, as much as Ezra about campaign finance before reading this paper, was his suggestion is that we're going to have a lot of money in politics no matter what, that there's a lot of people who want to put their money towards electing people. And we can set up the rules on where that money goes. We can set it up so it's easier to donate to political machines or it's harder. And one of the arguments that Roush makes in this is that we've essentially we've made it harder to donate to political machines so people go towards the amateurs because that's where they can park their money. One of the things I wasn't totally convinced on reading, though, is like how big is the role of rules and how big is – income inequality, other things that have been changing in the United States that might funnel people towards amateurs anyways because they want to fight one battle and they have – you're a billionaire who has like one issue that you really want to be vocal on. So that's one of the things you know, I thought about a lot reading this paper is you know how much of this is something we can solve through rules and changing how the political system works and how much of this – dysfunction, the split between amateurs and political professionals is part of larger forces that really would not be governed by changes. If we made it easier to donate to political parties, if we kind of changed the rules, would money flow back there or would it just keep going in the direction it's been going? Yeah, so Roush is picking up here on a, on a suggestion that comes from a, a guy named Ray, Ray LaRaja. I, I think that's how you say his last name. Um, I, I met him and I did not interrogate him as to the pronunciation of his last name. Um, this is an awesome sort of weeds trump card. Like, ah, the, it's Ray LaRaja and I, I've met him. And... I have Ray LaRaja right here. Um, <laughs> Matt's it was, a, a no, Ray LaRaja hipster here. It was, it was a true sort of... Matt was in political it was a true Marshall McLuhan uh, sort of moment from Annie Hall. I was I was talking to a political scientist about. Wait, this is a real story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I was talking to a political right scientist who I had just met about. Well, I was waiting outside. In fact, about, about campaign finance and the guy he brings up, he's like, blah 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 blah. And then I was like, you know, I sometimes think it's like if instead of having these super PACs, you just gave the money to the parties, maybe that would be better. And he was like, actually, I wrote a book about that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's a. Good book and a good <laughs> suggestion. But one of the things that I think has actually played out in this campaign, right, is that it's turned out that super PACs and this kind of like outside money 
um, haven't actually played the kind of large causal role can, can that I we just, had thought they would play. Uh, for just one real quick point yeah. of fact, because I don't know. I think we all know this, but I'm not sure if the audience does. The rules right now is you can only donate a very sharply limited amount of money to a political party or a political candidate. Right. I don't remember what the exact number is, but it's in the low thousands. You can donate unlimited amounts of money to an outside super PAC. So if I'm a rich guy and I want to give the Republican Party money, I'm limited to – again, I, I, I don't want to get this wrong, but it's like something around 4000 I think. I think they, they raised it Maybe considerably, they raised but it's so low. So it's, but you can give a million dollars to the Koch right. brothers super PAC. And what's, what's weird about the super PACs is that they're established – so like Right to Rise USA is a – institution that exists for the purposes of electing Jeb Bush, but it's not allowed to coordinate its activities with Jeb Bush's political campaign, right? So uh, the proposal, the Roush LaRaja proposal is you should be allowed to make unlimited donations to the political parties, and then those parties should be allowed to coordinate with their candidates. If you're Tom Steyer, if you're Charles Koch, you know, and you want to sort of move the ball forward, you give money to the party, the party can coordinate with the candidates so it's more effective, but also the party can sort of balance competing interests rather than just, just do what you want. And I think that when you think about state government in Nevada, that that's actually in some ways like a kind of a compelling idea that mm -hmm. instead of having outside drive-by billionaires pulling things hither and yon, that somebody who actually lives in Nevada and like is the chairman of the Nevada Republican and Nevada Democratic parties somewhere along the way gets to say, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to not do that. But at the same time, you know, when LaRaha was writing his book, when Roush was writing his paper, when we were writing our early hot takes, I think a lot of us <laughs> thought that these campaign super PACs were going to be really, really influential and we're going to really change the way politics is done. And I think looking at the campaign that's actually played out, we don't see a ton of evidence for that, right? That what we've seen going is it, Donald Trump is not as self-funding as he claims to be, but is largely self-funding. And Bernie Sanders is financed by small donors, not by an eccentric left-wing billionaire. So those are two methods of campaign finance that are not going to be legislated out of the system by Rush's kind of change. My like big picture take on Rush's paper is that one read of it is that the decline of transactional political machines has made American political institutions dysfunctional. I think that's correct. But then he seems to think that by taking a couple of very modest measures, a, a slight tweak to campaign finance reform, maybe don't complain as much about lack of transparency, that we can somehow push the ball all the way back up the hill. But that if you look at the story of like, why did political machines go into decline in the 1960s? It's not because of campaign finance reformers. Campaign finance reformers won victories in the 70s because the machines had declined. And that campaign finance reformers have been losing consistently since that time. But politics keeps becoming more polarized and more ideological. If you look at uh, Alan Abramowitz's book on polarization, I think very convincingly argues that what happens is, is that as the population becomes more educated and as the country becomes more prosperous, people get more 
knowledgeable about political ideology and people become less impressed by minor league handouts, right? Like it used to be like the ward healer might bring you a turkey on Thanksgiving right. and there'll be a gratitude. And the fact of the matter is, I mean, people have economic struggles in the United States of America, but there are very few people who are not able to afford a frozen butterball turkey from the supermarket on Thanksgiving. Like that kind of stuff is like not going to sway votes. And also you used to have tons of people who hadn't graduated from high school and they didn't have a lot of knowledge about politics. But if you were like, well, this guy gave me a turkey, <laughs> right? Like, so if you had no information about politics and you had a desperate need for turkeys, then political machines could be really, really- And, and it should be said jobs, right? Yeah. Another big thing political machines did was not was just jobs, turkeys, really the jobs, turkeys. Or they gave your, your cousin a job and it, well, I but, mean, the, the employment stuff was a really big deal. Well, it's like the guy who gets the job hands out the turkey. I was like the fact that the earliest filibuster recorded in American politics was about patronage jobs. Yeah. Was right? about, People always forget. This, who, who is going to get a printing contract? Yeah, but right? a, a lot of the early fights in American politics were about who got government jobs and just a tremendous amount of what we did. I remember when you watched the, the Lincoln movie that came out a couple of years ago, he gets all kinds of shit done by giving people postal jobs and just like the idea that you could like end slavery <laughs> by making – Somebody part of the post office today seems really weird. Well, and uh, Chester A. Arthur became president because he was vice president. The president was assassinated. Before he was vice president, he was the uh, head custom collector for the Port of New York, which at the time was an incredibly important <laughs> political job uh, because obviously New York was a big port. So they collected a lot of customs. So they employed a fuck ton of customs guys. So you would pick who you hire and those guys would hand out the turkeys. And that, that was – anyway, Roush does not <laughs> – The turkeys play such a bigger role in this than I had previously Yeah, no, nobody knew the, the turkey theory of American politics. Roush is not – this is the point. Roush is not proposing that we eliminate all government contracting standards and go back to a 19th century dynamic in which being Secretary of Health and Human Services is an incredibly powerful, crass political job because you get to pick which doctors and which hospitals get paid for Medicare and which don't. Yeah. Right? Like, that would be how you recreate political machines. But Roush, appropriately, lacks the courage of his convictions <laughs> on this point because it would be insane. But so let me jump on that because I, I think you're exactly right. But I think so much of it is cultural here. So I want to read a couple of quotes from here when Roush is describing professionals and amateurs. And I think it's worth thinking about Donald Trump while I read mm. some of these because I think also you'll see both how they apply to someone like Trump but also how much even someone trying to describe this very positively, it cuts totally against, you know, in, in your intuitive reaction where, where Rush wants you to be. So he's writing about professionals. And he writes, professionals are repeat players. They work the system for a living. They're accountable for electoral victory and sustainable power arrangements. Otherwise, they're out of a job. Thus, they think in terms of the realities of power and they develop a certain detachment towards politics and a certain immunity to its excitement and its outcomes. To appearances and indeed often enough in reality, professionals are calculating even cynical. All right. Next paragraph. Professionals prefer to traffic in interests, not ideas. They feel more at ease with transaction and negotiation than with the politics of issues. Issues will be avoided except in the most general terms or if the party is confident the majority supports its opinion, its position. Professionals are not oblivious to ideology or principle, but they tend to be in politics for extrinsic rewards like power, status, sociability, the fun of the game, and tangible benefits, including pecuniary ones. So – this is a paper where the point is what we need are more political professionals. But the language of American politics, and this goes to, to Matt's point, 
just trying to describe what a political professional is, it sounds like such a loathsome creature. And I mean, and then he goes into activists. They're less interested in extrinsic rewards and in advancing a public purpose, fighting for justice, experiencing the intrinsic satisfactions of participation. For them, issues are the essence of politics. Amateurs not only love issues, they need them as a source of legitimacy and cohesion. They'll manufacture them if none are at hand. To your point, Matt, one of the interesting things about this is that culturally and, and, and conceptually and ideologically, we have made a very, very, very big shift. One of the interesting parts of this paper, and it's done a little bit quickly, is a defense of Tammany Hall as actually having done a lot of good for people and sort of being remembered so poorly because of basically anti-Irish racism at the time. But within this paper, I think you see just how hard this is even to, to discuss. I think that the matrix that he's pointing out of sort of party machines and, and political professionals and amateurs, you see how it leads to someone like Donald Trump. But it is hard to imagine how you would even begin arguing for it to go in the other in the other direction because of the underlying premises that amateurs are better than professionals and political machines are worse than non-political machines are so overwhelmingly held. Right. Like you read that paragraph on professionals and like you could think just like slotting like Hillary Clinton, like, mm -hmm. in for a professional. And you see that as, like, the big kind of attack and the reason, yeah. like, Democrats are, you know, thinking about Sanders strongly. Like, you know, you read that paragraph, Hillary Clinton feels more at ease with transaction and negotiation than with politics of issues. Hillary Clinton will avoid issues except in the most general terms where she's confident the majority supports its position. It's a shockingly close lineup between what we're seeing in politics and things he describes Today, one of the things that, you know, I struggled with a little bit in this paper is that Rausch starts off saying, you know, that the politicos of our grandparents' generation did a pretty good job of governing the country, despite living in a world of bosses and backrooms and unlimited donations. I felt like that romanticized a little bit the last 20th century of, I don't know how you both felt about that part of it, but suggesting, you know, that things, I guess things ran with less gridlock, but there were also women couldn't vote for a good chunk of time and like African-Americans were disenfranchised for a good chunk of time, that there is a role of the activists that I thought was tamped down on here, the positive role that activists have played in kind of pushing American politics forward. And I think Rauch, you know, he grants that a little bit. He talks, I'm just trying to defend the professionals because that's become such a hard thing to do. But I also think he gives a bit of short shrift to the role of amateurs in the system which I guess is fair in a paper where you're kind of arguing, you know, the amateurs are totally dominant right now. But that's one thing I felt was like missing a little bit, suggesting that 50 years ago was better than now. Well, there are a lot of things 50 years ago that weren't as good as right now. Well, and what he does, I, I think, is he, he defends the system of the late 60s and of the 70s, which is like a system in which the machines were still influential, but the amateurs were making a real difference. I mean, I think there's a certain wisdom in that in terms of if you want to pick an example of the system working well, which is like environmental activists got fired up in the 1970s and like political professionals didn't want to deal with environmental issues because it scrambled their normal alignment. Rich Republican ladies were upset about forests being destroyed, but, you know, business, blah, blah, blah. And, and political professionals helped channel that activist energy into like something happening that was consistent with the economy continuing to function. I think Rausch would make the argument or I would make the argument, right, that machines did not want to put 
civil rights issues on the table. But once activists forced them onto the table, they handled the issue in a reasonably responsible way. People were killed in, in civil rights clashes, but not all that many people, considering the scale of the social upheaval that, that happened, because political professionals helped mediate it. And you have weird things like uh, Democratic Party senators from the South would often have in the early to mid 1960s have started their careers as diehard white supremacists and ended their careers in the mid to late 1980s, being elected mostly with African-American votes and having black staffers. And that's the spirit of professionalism was like, we're going to accommodate ourselves to social change rather than fighting back. But it also makes for an odd paper because what he's saying is, is that machines played a useful role during the period when they were being destroyed by ideologically motivated activists. He's not actually defending the pre-ideological era of total machine dominance. So he's not really, I think, making the case that the activists and amateurs who brought down the machines were wrong. The question in all of this is like, why would you get the result that he wants? <laughs> the reason the professionals continued to play a role in the 60s and 70s was that they had already built up these careers and these masses of political power. But how would you get new machines up off the ground in an era in which the people who are involved in politics are involved for ideological reasons and in which the, the even the vocabulary of amateurs versus professionals is itself very 1960s, right? It's the difference between a party professional who works for the machine and someone who showed up one day and is like, you know what I care about? Clean water. <laughs> uh, but environmental groups are run by professionals. This was uh, so something that actually came up in Sanders versus Clinton, right? Is that Hillary wants to say, look, the leading gay rights group supports me. The biggest labor unions in America support me. And then Bernie says, oh, no, that's the establishment. Planned Parenthood is the establishment. And then Hillary fights back. They have like a snitty argument about it. But the point is, is that these are issue-oriented activist groups. And they now have professional staffs because we're talking about a system that changed decades ago. There are no bosses. You can't, you can't re-empower them because there's nobody there. But I think that, that some of what he's trying to do here and trying to say here is actually usefully thought through through the Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton presidential thought experiments, right? Yeah. Which is that he's trying to ask the question of what kinds of politicians and political relationships create space for deal making. Mm. And Clinton, obviously, her approach to politics is heavily transactional. She has amassed the support of virtually every major Democratic interest group and officeholder through, you know, reasonably transactional politics. They are sure that she will, within the, the possible space for deal making, try to make deals that benefit their interests. And her kind of web of deep relationships with these interest groups, with politicians and government, the idea of Hillary Clinton, and, and Matt, you've talked about this on the podcast and, and written it, I think, on Vox, is that she will come into office and she will figure out where the possible positive sum negotiations can be had and have them. So maybe that's the big European trade deal, or maybe that is going forward on some kind of corporate tax reform. Sanders, by contrast, his argument is we shouldn't really have transactional politics at all. His argument is that we should have a political revolution that will lead to people sort of rising up outside the system and putting so much pressure on the system that deal making is rendered 
functionally unnecessary. And I think a really core question in the Democratic primary, frankly, in the Republican primary with Donald Trump, if Michael Bloomberg comes in as a third party candidate, this, this holds true as well. And a, a question that Roush is raising here is, well, how much do you think deal making and compromise are necessary within our political system? A lot of people want to think they are not. Roush believes, and I actually agree with him, that our system is set up to force a very unusually high level of compromise and consensus for anything big or small to get done. And so if you begin with that premise, as he does, then you ask, like, OK, who are the kinds of players and politicians and what are the kinds of structures like political parties that can help you, particularly in an ideologically sharp period, to make those kinds of deals. But I do think it's actually a really useful thing to think about because I think what Roush is arguing here is that there is a level of transactionalness that is inherent to American politics and that you can't get rid of that by getting rid of political machines. You can't get rid of that by getting more outsider inspiring amateur candidates into office. You would actually need to completely rebuild American politics from the ground up to have it not work that way. So if you agree with that premise, then he's basically arguing you have to accept things in American politics that maybe you don't like, that a lot of the things that make deal-making and negotiating happen kind of strike people as a little bit wrong. It's backroom deals, so people have a lot of time to work out ideas without the public hearing about them and being able to blow them up. And we've talked about how that's been how Congress has worked for the last year in, in previous episodes of the podcast. And a lot of that is things like earmarks, and it's having politicians who are tied and a little bit in hawk to political parties that care about what's going to happen five or eight years from now or 10 years or 20 years from now, not just what's going to happen right now. So I think that's where it gets kind of complicated. I don't think, I don't think Rush is naive here. I, I think he knows he's not going to get back to that prehistoric time. But I, I do think that he's trying to get people to accept a premise about American politics and that a lot of people accept, but also to get them to accept what follows from it, which a lot of people don't. Let's take a break and talk about a great deal for Weed's listeners. And then we'll talk about Donald Trump and deal making is like an interesting phenomenon that I'm not sure we've really chewed over in, in the right way here. You know, in the, in the razor industry, they have this sort of business model that's called razors and blades where they, they'll sell you this, this razor and it, it looks really nice uh, and for cheap. And then they gouge you on the blades that, that custom fit into it. That's why when you go to the drugstore and you find yourself shopping for blades, they're like under lock and key, like it's precious metal that's, that's being stored up back there because they're, they're so expensive. And then, you know, we've got a, a great sponsor this week, Harry's, and they've got blades that are good. You know, you use them, they shave you, it feels nice, you look nice, uh, and they're just way, way, way cheaper than what you see from the kind of major national brands. They're selling German-engineered five-blade cartridges. Gives you a nice, close, comfortable shave. There's no cuts. There's no burns. The quality is guaranteed. If you don't like it, you get a full refund. So, you know, there's no risk. And the price is much lower because they cut out the middleman. They don't have this web of, of retailers. It just ships right to you. So the blades come in at about half the price of the leading national brand. Over a million guys have already made the switch, and thousands more more switch every day. Why pay $32 for an eight-pack of blades when you can get them for half that price at harrys.com? And the Harry's starter set is just a great deal. For $15, you get a razor, you get a moisturizing shave cream, and you get three blades. Uh, so Harry's prices are already really low, but we've got the special offer for you guys. Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with promo code WEEDS. So stop overpaying for a great shave. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com and enter code WEEDS at check. 
I think that we've mapped the professionals amateurs divide very nicely into the Democratic primary. Where I agree, we've really we've really killed it on this one. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, it, 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 it lines thing. up. It lines up so well with Clinton versus Sanders, <laughs> even though Sanders has been in politics a long time. On the Republican side. I think it's different. Donald Trump is a genuinely, if you're just literal about it, he is an amateur in politics and the people that he's running against are professionals. But if you think about the spirit of the politics that they're running with, the Republican Party, more so than the Democratic Party, has come to be dominated by very ideological people who are very deeply invested in conservative ideology and who are quite reluctant to engage in deal-making and, and bargaining. That's been like a, a big shaping force of the Obama years. And we have, Ezra's written about political science research showing that, you know, Republican politicians don't like to make deals in part because Republican voters don't believe in deal-making in general as a sort of a, a political value. So the professionals have really become amateurs on that side. Whereas in Trump, you have an amateur who all he talks about is deal-making. His book is called The Art of the Deal, and he campaigns on ideologically heterodox issues like he's going to strike better trade deals. He's going to make a bargain with the pharmaceutical companies. And I think that one way to think about the promise of Trumpism is that he is saying to there are a group of people who feel that the Democratic Party as the party of racial minorities, unorthodox sexual orientations, urban cosmopolitans, etc., does not represent their interests personally, but who are not themselves bought into conservative ideology. And what they want is a transactional politics for them. And that Donald Trump is offering that. He is saying to straight, white, culturally Christian, but not necessarily super duper observant America, that I will go to Washington as a steward of your interests, and then I will do stuff to advance your interests. But I'm not saying that, like, I'm going to do the stuff that was cooked up in a laboratory in the Heritage Foundation because life is complicated. There's Japanese guys trying to put it over on us and drug companies and everyone's ripping us off. So you need Trump in there to, like, fight for you as a deal maker. There's something almost inspiring about it. <laughs> that's, that's an impressive defense of Trump. I, <laughs> so I, I think that's a good point. I kind of brings up the deal-making was inherent in Trumpism. But one of the things that just feels like a little bit different about Trump deal-making and professional deal-making is like the system Roush writes about is one where there's rewards. There's a whole system where you have all these people and like, you know, they're getting turkeys and all these things that we talked about are happening. The turkeys are back. The turkeys are back. I don't see like Trump as a turkey sort of guy. Yeah, but Trump's in it for the extrinsic rewards of sociability and what was on the list? Power. Power. I mean, maybe we obviously don't have a Trump administration, so this is all hypothetical or don't have one yet. I was told, by the way, that I cannot do my like full anti-Trump rant on this podcast. Wow. Well, go to Vox.com. Go to Vox.com. You you can search um, Vox. Trump's rise is a terrifying moment in American politics. So Trump will not be appearing on the Ezra Klein show, from what I can tell. Uh, But it's hard for me to see Trump building this machine that's like a very multi-scaled, people are rewarded. Like Trump seems to build a lot of his reputation. Like, I'm the guy who cuts deals. I'm going to advance myself. And maybe, you know, the way you advance yourself is through deals and is through giving other people positions of power and giving them turkeys and whatever you do to reward folks. But one of the things that seems different about Trump's role in all of this is that he seems to like 
to talk about himself very much as like a one-man negotiating show, not like an entire system that's built around extending things for the long haul. But He like, promised not that he personally is going to make the best deals, but we're going to bring in all the best minds from the business community, and they're going to make all the... Anyway, I'm, I'm a little bit joking, but I agree that Trump is not promising to bring back the machine system, but I think that's because you can't bring back the machines, but you do need to bring back the spirit of the deal. But but let me push, because I, I think Sarah has something really right here. I think that we are getting very literal about the idea of transactional politics and deal making here. I'm a very literal person. And Trump is not talking about it, not in a real way, talking about deals in the way that Roush is. Trump uses the idea of the deal and the idea of his deal-making prowess as roughly an analog of Bernie Sanders' political revolution. Trump's view of what will happen when he can make deals is not that people of different interests are going to give a little and get a little and ultimately everybody's going to come out ahead, but that Mexico is going to pay to build a wall. Trump's idea of the deal is that he's going to get in there and Iran is just going to give up their nuclear weapons. Now you're being literal. But but that is but I am being I am saying this is what Trump is telling people. Whether Trump believes this, I actually think is a little bit to the side of the point. And this is a place where I think the amateurs professional saying can these are not great terms because he doesn't mean amateurs and somebody you can be an amateur who's been working in American politics for fifty years under the the definition that Roush uses here. He sort of means ideologues versus party hacks, right? Yeah. Which is, again, not a not a super easy, um, also has very loaded language in it. And I think that what is interesting about Trump from that perspective is that one thing that he really does share with the amateur or ideologue approach here, as you say, Matt, like something that he, he is much more all over the map. And so in that way, he's not a traditional ideologue in the sense that he's not like a highly structured liberal or conservative. In fact, that Trump is sort of like an actual moderate, the moderates you find out in the country where he's got a range of issue positions, they are very strong and they just don't map left or right very easily. Sometimes he can be quite liberal for a Republican and sometimes he's way more conservative than Ted Cruz. But that said, Trump is arguing on some level and from a, a somewhat unusual vantage point that politics is deeply corrupt and it's transactionally corrupt. One of his big arguments and, and the reason he focuses on this lie that he's self-financing his campaign so often is that all the other politicians are corrupted by the money they're raising. And he had this whole thing in his New Hampshire victory speech where he talked about the bad deals that all the current politicians are making. And he kind of made the Marco Rubio argument that they know exactly what they're doing, that they're oh, they bought know off. Exactly yeah. What, what, what is the line, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> Let's dispel with the notion that Barack Obama somehow doesn't know what he's doing. He knows exactly what so, he's doing. So that is Trump's view, <laughs> as expressed in his New Hampshire political speech, of the uh, victory speech of the other politicians in, in the game. So I do think that one thing he really shares here is a belief that he's promoting helping on the campaign trail, that politics has become corrupt and it's run by people who are in it to sort of pocket a little bit for themselves or get a little bit of power. Obviously, I think we think Trump is kind of that way too, but Trump's self-presentation and possibly even his self-conception from a, from a slightly bizarre angle, because I think he's a somewhat bizarre guy, is different than that. And I do think maps onto this pretty well. Okay, I, I got to further defend Trump here. So, so, okay, so one thing is on the corruption point, and I think this is a, an area in which we've seen a change in the system, because one of Roush's big points is that a political professional profits from holding office. 
office, right? So that he wants to continue to hold office. And that's why, in Rausch's view, the machine promotes like stability and to an extent good governments, because you maybe skim a little off the top, but you need to stay in power in order to keep profiting. The modern system is a system of sort of rise up and then cash out. Right, in which you don't right. need to hold on to office. And if you look, for example, at the trade deals that Trump is referring to, uh, Tim Lee wrote a, a good piece for, for Vox on how the U.S. Trade Representative's office works. And the way it works is that you get to a high level and you do like the pharma negotiations for the USTR office. And then you go work for the pharmaceutical lobby afterwards. And that's how you make – you don't make your money by holding the job in USTR where you are maybe a little corrupt but also accountable. You make your money by sort of doing favors for industry and then getting out. And so I think that to an extent, the critique of corruption that exists, of the sort of revolving door type corruption, is in fact more problematic than the old kind of honest graph that, that Rauch talks about. And that it's a mistake to just sort of say, well, all anti-corruption, because obviously corruption is not good, right? I mean, I think we all sort of agree that. Uh, but what Rauch is saying is that it used to have this kind of functional role in politics, that it would motivate people to try to govern responsibly, in fact, to continue to, to profit. But we've made actually holding office much less lucrative relative to the business world in a way that I think uh, undermines some of this stuff. The reason I'm soft on Trump as a transactional politician is that Trump as a businessman originally, before he got into television, was in the very most politically transactional line of work that remains, right, which is big city real estate development. His explanation for why he used to contribute uh, all this money to Democrats is, you know, he was operating in places that were governed by Democrats. And it is 100 percent accurate that the only way to get permission to build large buildings in urban areas is to, in effect, bribe stakeholders. And it's not in a bad way. Like, it would be really, really bad if it was impossible to do these projects. And the way you get them done is a, a mix of campaign contributions, but also you agree to use labor union workers, and that gets you support from, like, a larger council of, of stakeholders. And, and he, he writes about this uh, to an extent. I think it's an art of the deal. And he talks about his father father, too, you know, was a real estate developer, and, and he was very involved in politics. So I, I have this gut level of faith that at some level, Trump knows the score and understands actually what the tension between an honest political system and a functional political system is in a way that is very different from Bernie Sanders, who I seems to me is like a genuine not a naive person because he's been in Congress for a long time, but he's observed Congress for a long time and has truly concluded that the transactions around money in politics are what's stopping him from making progress. And I think he's mistaken about that. I was going to turn our attention to another character in all this, Ted Cruz, who actually comes up in this paper in particular. And I think he says some interesting things about, you know, the idea we've been talking about how amateur and professional is blurring a little bit. So one of the things Roush writes about is that, you know, these Machine hierarchies, I'll just quote from it, machine hierarchies are pretty adept at marginalizing grandstanders and solo entrepreneurs. In machine-dominated Senate, there isn't much room for a figure like Ted Cruz. He can't shut down the government. So he's this idea that if we had a more machine-dominated 
Senate, Ted Cruz would not be able to say, I oppose Obamacare, and I'm going to shut down the government for two or three weeks a few years ago because of it. And that kind of suggests in this world that Ted Cruz is kind of this amateur figure. Right. He has one issue. He really hates Obamacare. He has a number of issues, but Obamacare, like, rises to the top. But at the same time, like, Ted Cruz has turned that into staying power. Like, Ted Cruz won the Iowa primary, and Ted Cruz, Mm -hmm. as much as it seems like, you know, in that case, it was kind of one freelancer is building this movement around him. And one of the kind of assumptions embedded in Rauscher's paper is that there's this desire to make deals, that everyone like wants to advance legislation and they want to do things that will win them votes. I think one of the interesting things you've written about, Ezra, I think there's we have a video about it, is that legislation tends to have a liberal-leaning bias, where when you're passing laws, you're usually expanding things. You know, Obamacare is expanding insurance. You have stimulus laws. So is Medicare Part D Medicare Bush. Part D, yeah. So even when Republicans legislate, it's expanding government. So actually, if you think about, you know, what it means to make a deal, what it actually means to pass legislation, that's not often the goal of Republicans. Often obstructionism in that frame could be the right goal to have right there. Absolutely. So so let me make two points on this, because I think, I think you're totally right to bring in Ted Cruz as in some ways a more interesting example. One just thing I was very amused by in New Hampshire, just to do this for one minute, is the Republican who came in first – used to support single-payer and also supported Hillary Clinton's 2008 health care bill. The Republican who came in second, John Kasich, has said that if you don't accept Obamacare's Medicaid expansion, you will not get into heaven. So <laughs> I think the one thing we've known about the Republican Party for the last couple of years is they really hate government-sponsored health care. And it turns out their base is not quite as pure on this, at least not in New Hampshire, as a lot of people thought. But but your broader point is right, and, and it goes to something that I think is fascinating about this dichotomy and about the, the total triumph of this kind of thinking. From where the paper starts, there are really no politicians today. And I think this goes for – we brought up Hillary Clinton earlier. I think another one we might bring up here is John Boehner, who actually count as professionals. I think that all of the politicians today – in any kind of long sweep view of American politics are incredibly highly ideological. John Boehner is a very conservative person. His voting record is incredibly conservative. And he has some of the personality traits, like he would have been a good machine politician, but in the context in which he operates, he is so much further towards the amateur side of this than the professional, that he is so much further towards the in government to pursue an ideological set of ends as opposed to in government to continue being in government, to win power, to, to get these rewards. It's not even funny. And the same is true for Hillary Clinton too. Again, like some of these folks have, have the traits of more machine politicians, like personally, but they are incredibly bounded by the context in which they operate, which is highly ideologically polarized. And, and Cruz is a really great example of that. As you say, Cruz is by any measure a, at this point, key player in the conservative establishment, which is a really important establishment. It is related to but distinct from the Republican establishment, right? A lot of the Republican establishment doesn't like Ted Cruz. You can see Ted Cruz has raised a tremendous amount of money. I think he's only second to Jeb Bush, and here we're counting super PACs and stuff. He has garnered a very large number of endorsements from incredibly influential players in conservative politics. And as you mentioned, he's doing, he's built a big operation on the ground. He's doing really well. He he won Iowa. He did, uh, I think, okay in New Hampshire. So, You now have a a thing where we are only looking at different versions of ideological politicians. 
or the kind of weird thing that Trump is. There's really no no one left who I think you would just look at as a pretty pure deal maker. I mean, I think back not that far back in American political history, right? I'm, I'm not that old. But when I came into starting to cover politics, you still had people like John Brew, right, who was a Louisiana Democrat who was – very, very, very non-ideological. He'd kind of cut most deals that got in front of him. And, and I'm sure to some degree, like compared to people before him, he was somewhat ideological. But there aren't folks like that now. And I'm not saying – like I was not a fan of John Burroughs. Like I was very frustrated by a bunch of deals he cut. But there aren't that set of people in the Senate now or people in the House now who you expect at the end of any negotiation over anything are potentially going to be votes in play. You just don't have that. You don't have people who put deal-making ahead of ideology. And also the electioneering matter, right? I mean, again, yeah. from the quote-unquote old days when relatively young people like us were <laughs> starting out, right? Tom Daschle would run for re-election in South Dakota and, and Tim Johnson, too, with like – ads about how, like, well, it would be ridiculous for the conservative electorate of this conservative state to elect a conservative Republican, but these powerful Democrats have all this random pork barrel spending. Right. And, like, just no one would make that argument today, like, just 10 years later, because it would sound ridiculous, right? right. Like like you were saying, <laughs> don't just, <laughs> like, don't just vote me out of office, send me to jail. <laughs> I'm like, I'm really corrupt, right? And, and you saw that in the Obamacare, right? Where a lot of these these politicians on on their last stand, I mean, a lot of them were Democratic Party politicians representing more conservative than average states. And so they were like in a tough position because there was Obama and change. And their big idea was, well, we should put obviously meritless provisions (laughs) into the bill that just happened to be beneficial to our state. And it didn't work out well for them. So so to just use a famous example, because I think it's worth doing for a minute. I've also thought this is so such a weird moment in American politics. The person we're sort of talking about here without saying his name really is Ben Nelson, who is from Nebraska. And he was a a conservative Democrat from Nebraska. Nebraska is a very red state. Barack Obama did not come close to winning it in 2008. And at the end of the negotiations, in order to sign on to the bill, Nelson inserted what later became called the Cornhusker kickback. And Sarah, do you remember the details on the Cornhusker kickback? Well, as I oh, I hope I don't get this wrong. That'd be embarrassing. But as I remember it, it was a better Medicaid match. It was a better Medicaid match. This is ex- hard because it's a fucking good Medicaid match now. Well, no. So they ex- ended up extending it to all the states is like how, oh, is how all the, this gets resolved. So he, it it basically he says, well, I want Nebraska's Medicaid expansion paid the first three years. And they kind of work this in. Someone then obviously notices the Cornhusker kickback. All the other senators freak out. And then we end up paying for all the states' Medicaid expansions for the first three years, which turns out, thank you, Ben Nelson from the Obama administration, because now we got all these states, too. So the, the point of this is, though, that what you might have imagined would happen here is that voters in the other 49 states would be really mad about this Cornhusker kickback because they were ultimately paying the tab to subsidize Nebraska because Ben Nelson happened to be a pivot vote on, on this legislation. But what actually happened was voters in Nebraska were really mad at Ben Nelson because they thought he was corrupt. And so he got voted out when he was next up for re-election, and, and this really didn't help him. And it was an amazing moment of watching someone practice the old politics at a moment when the new form of politics had kind of taken over already. Because that kind of thing just didn't work anymore. And it, it should work. It makes total sense. I mean, another way of talking about earmarks, which, which we more or less ban now, is just saying that 
one thing that politicians do to make a more Donald Trumpian argument is come in and cut really good deals for their constituents so that voters from Ohio get a better deal than voters from um, Wyoming. But they're not really allowed to say that anymore. It's considered a dirty way to practice politics. And that created, and I think what's important about it for this paper, is when you could talk about that without it being loaded, when you could talk about that without being a huge benefit and a huge bragging right you brought back to your state, that created a non-ideological axis of accomplishment that you could use when bragging to voters, right? That created a, an axis of accomplishment that really worked for professional, more hackish politicians where you were making a case for yourself that wasn't about you being the best liberal or the best conservative. You are, you're saying I'm the best representative of people from Nebraska and what that requires in a given situation you know, will just change. And now that you can't do that, you really actually do, to, to a larger degree, have to compete based on being in the primaries the best liberal or the best conservative with the only leavening factor being electability. This is where I think there's something that's insightful, but also something that's wrong in, in the Roush paper, which is just that I think he's underrating the extent to which it's not like the media or dastardly good government reformers who've changed here. It's the actual human beings. The population is much better educated, is wealthier, is more sophisticated, and is less interested in this kind of corrupt deal-making. And one thing that I remember from early in the uh, sort of Obamacare debate was that they weren't going to like earmark this thing through, but you can do like non-earmark earmarks. And so there were a couple people who were working on some just like essentially main-specific insurance ideas. Like, was there something you could do that would involve, like, lobster fishing accidents or, you know, the timber industry? Like, because Maine was represented by two moderate Republican senators who it seemed like would be the people. Yeah, you know, so it was just like a a sort of... Give the families of lobster fishing folks a turkey. Right, exactly. (laughs) No, so it was like a small side initiative being done by a couple people in the healthcare world who were trying to brainstorm, look, what are some things we could put on the table for Olympia Snow and uh, Susan Collins. And at the end of the day, they just weren't interested. You know, it wasn't that they asked for too much or, or something like that. It's that the game had changed. And even though Maine is not like a great state for Republicans to run in, it's not a super conservative state, they knew they were sort of overcommitted to being Republican Party politicians at this point to say, okay, we voted for this giant Obama health care scheme because it's going to create a cancer research center at the University of Maine or because it's going to do great things for lobstermen. It was like the way politics works now is that sometimes there's a time for choosing and like word had come down, deals were not being cut and like you just couldn't do it. And I think this idea that like, well... If they could have had a few more earmarks, right? Like it's the the change is like bigger than the procedural changes. It's a change in what voters would value in a member of Congress. Yeah, and you know now that I think about the Obamacare debate, it's almost like you had to be, you had to become like much more um, stealth in your kickback. So like one of the ones <laughs> that I think about is the Cornhusker kickback, like giving Nebraska more money. It was just like such an obvious like this is a thing for Nebraska. But one of the things Washington State, for example, did manage to get into the law is um, Washington State, they had some, it's called the Basic 
health plan that covered people up to 200 percent of poverty. I forget what exa- how exactly it worked out, but basically they got the law to make it easier for them to get more money for this program. Now, you wouldn't, it doesn't mention Washington State anywhere in the law. It just happens that, like, they have this program. Other states could build it if they'd like to build this program. But they were able to continue their um, basic health plan through this law. They can brag about, like, what a great program this is and, like, how the ACA will let them expand it. But they Maria Cantwell, I can't, or Patty Murray can't brag about the fact, like, look at this great thing I got done for Washington State. It has to be, like, much more buried in this massive law. All right. I think this brings us back to the Iowa and New Hampshire results in an interesting way. But but before we do that, I think we have a message transactionally from our sponsor. You know, I built a lot of websites, a lot of different blogs over the years. It used to be, frankly, really, really hard. Um, we had some barriers to entry in this industry. It, it was lovely. But now there's Squarespace. It's super easy. The sites come out looking professionally designed, no matter what your skill level is. You don't need to do any coding to make them look great. But if you do know how to insert a little code of your own, you can do that. You make it with intuitive, super easy to use tools. Uh, and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year, which is uh, just an amazing deal. So you can start your free trial site to Today at squarespace.com. Launch it up. Start working. I think you're going to love it. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code WEEDS to get 10% off your first purchase. So you're both clearly right about, about this broader point, which is that this is not just a question of rules. It isn't a question of taking earmarks out of Congress. It's a question of the, the much broader ideological shift in what the electorate values that led to earmarks being outlawed in Congress. And I think that's what you really saw in, in New Hampshire and, and to some degree actually in Iowa too, which is this shift has happened so totally and so overwhelmingly that politicians who a couple of years ago, like Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, it would have been basically inconceivable they would win a major party nomination, are, are now in a position where, where maybe they, they really might win it. And I think that one thing that we've really seen on display is that it isn't just because of their personal charisma. It is partially because of personal charisma. Both of them are very talented, magnetic candidates. But I think that if you watch the recent Democratic debate, for instance, you saw Hillary Clinton finding herself completely unable to defend a transactional approach to politics on stage, right? You saw her being questioned about speaking fees she took, which is not quite transactional politics, but it is kind of part of this web of interest group associations. But you also more broadly saw just how much nicer it sounds when Bernie Sanders talks about, you know, his kind of purity and political revolution and mobilizing people versus Hillary Clinton explaining how she's going to try to cut deals. And one of the really fascinating kind of aftermath things right now in the Democratic Party after that debate is watching the Clinton campaign launch these really hollow kind of ridiculous attacks like, oh, Bernie Sanders took 200000 from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and that 200000 came in part from banks and other big corporate actors. And so he's actually a transactional politician like everyone else. Like The Hillary Clinton campaign's theory now is maybe they can make Bernie Sanders look more like them because they're having so much trouble making themselves look more like Bernie Sanders. And similarly, I think there's been a, a continuous advantage for Trump, for Cruz, even Marco Rubio. Rubio, it's worth remembering, came into office just a couple of years ago as someone who was fighting the Republican Party. He ran against the Republican Party's favored candidate in Florida, Charlie Crist, and he was considered a real Tea Party ideologue, a real insurgent against the establishment. I think clearly where we are in American politics right now is that the, the basic language and the basic sort of positioning of the electorate is such that even pretty ideological candidates who have some whiff of transactionalism about them 
are having a lot of trouble defending that. Uh, it isn't to say it can't be done. Obama's theory in 08 did have transactionalism to it. He thought there'd be a broader common space for making deals and was arguing that, although he was arguing it in a way that I don't think that's what it felt like he was saying to people. But we're really in a space now where I think the basic terms of the debate really favor these kinds of much more outsider candidates who have managed either within the system like Bernie Sanders or Ted Cruz or outside it like Donald Trump to somehow remain untainted. I mean, I think it speaks a little bit just to how you frame the debate, because you can talk about, you know, the desire to compromise, to make deals, to one of the things I think sometimes you'll see politicians run on is, you know, I can work with the other side. I can be in this like middle space. And the flip side of that is being transactional and being corrupt. And it's kind of two framings of the same thing. You know, the big question that the Brash paper raised for me, well, it's to think about like what is behind this and would making the changes he talks about push us back in the opposite direction. I came away a little skeptical that they would, kind of where Matt started, that they seem like some pretty small changes, and that my sense, although not perfectly researched at this point, is that there's something larger going on with the electorate, that pushing back on campaign finance, you could see the machine almost becoming more like the amateurs, kind of like what Ezra was saying, that anyone you look at now really isn't political machine. But that's one of the things I came away from this paper thinking about, is that there's something, I think, arguably bigger than the universe he's looking at that is driving towards this type of politics we have now that would not be addressed with some campaign reform finance and, you know, more money running through the machine. Let me make the case here, though, for Roush's meta solution. His, his practical solutions are clearly too small, but, but solutions are often like if there were easy solutions, like these wouldn't be hard problems. Like the, the solutions part of political books are always really disappointing. But his meta solution is that there needs to be a kind of advocacy around political realism and a different approach to politics that there that there often isn't right now. That, that maybe sometimes people think there is. Like you do have uh, political commentators who love talking about how great bipartisanship is, but they don't want to see transactional deal making as part of it. They're, they're very upset when things begin to feel to them like they're not being sufficiently transparent, or they're you know tilting into you know kickbacks and backroom deals and and all of that. If you take Rush seriously and you believe in his underlying point here, what it kind of calls for is slightly a new class of realists. Something I think about a lot with Hillary Clinton lately is the way in which she combines something that I think is good with something I think is pretty bad. She really understands how the system works and she's really has deep relationships in it and she has a very pragmatic and practical understanding of it. But she has done that by buying into pretty much every facet of the political system, including things like doing $675,000 three-piece speeches for Goldman Sachs. And so what you end up with is that a lot of the people defending political realism are not good messengers for their case, right? They don't they don't believe in it as an actual good approach to politics, just kind of what they've been doing, and they've been doing the good sides and the bad sides of it. It is kind of why I bring up Obama here a little bit, who I think has been a different version of a political realist, who has kind of managed to walk that line, you know, reasonably astutely. He's cut a lot of deals that, you know, neither liberals nor conservatives like. He clearly has worked a lot with the pharmaceutical industry. He's cut deals with Republicans that liberals didn't like. He made an argument in 08 that definitely got people's hopes much higher about what could be accomplished. 
But in a, in a practical way, did rely on theories about negotiation and compromise and bringing people together. He was, again, I think really <laughs> – Brought expectations too high for that, but but I think there was something there. If like political realism is to be saved from the political realists, you're going to need people who advocate it not because it is the thing they've fallen into over a long career in which they have allowed themselves to get pretty appropriated by the political establishment. You're going to need people who come to it itself as a more exciting, philosophically interesting proposal. And I think that I think that's kind of the interesting thing here. The thing that he really convinced me of is not that we should like go all the way to the other side, but that the language has gotten so far from even being able to consider what the utility of some of these other more grubby parts of politics have been that we're in a place now where, you know, we, we've probably underrated them. We've probably gone a little bit too far. And that in order to get back to another place, it isn't going to be small tweaks to who you get to donate to. It's going to be changes in the argument about what makes a good person or a good politician in this realm. Well, what I think is is tricky here is the piece of this that uh, we, we haven't talked as much about, which is um, transparency rather than rules, right? That I think one thing Rauch says that I think is 100 percent correct is that the push to do things in a more and more and more and more transparent way has really harmed people's ability to make compromises because when you're talking in public, you have to take positions and you can't signal which interests you're willing to throw overboard. You can't say, you know, I know those are my guys, but like, eh. You, you know, there's bigger, right. there's bigger fish to fry here. You just, you can't say that in public, and that means you cannot do a deal, and that's why there is nothing that is done outside the world of government politics where it's done in public, right? You don't have a, a business negotiation by doing blog posts, you know, like back and forth across each other because it doesn't yet. Yes. Uh, it, it doesn't work, right? Like in our workplace, we have a largely like an open open office plan and open desks. But sometimes you have to talk to somebody else behind closed doors, not because it's like shady, because you can't have conversations between people when other people can listen to the conversation, right? Like everybody knows that. But there's a very persistent idea in politics. Like I think the craziest thing we do in the government is that archiving every email that everyone in the federal government sends to anyone for any purposes. They all have to do all their communications about anything like remotely sensitive, like on phone calls or and then there was a thing. Can I just stop you and just say this is, by the way, the sort of hidden thing about the Hillary Clinton email scandal. It's the thing people think she did every single politician does, which is take sensitive communication and get that into places that are not archived. Right. They're always mm -hmm. calling you on the phone or emailing you on their personal account or setting an in-person meeting. She just, because she did it for everything, just ended up looking much worse than everybody right. else does. But, but the practical effect was the same. It's dangerous, right? Like it makes it impossible for the relevant agencies to secure government communication systems. Uh, it's incredibly inefficient. It drastically decreases journalists' ability to understand what's happening in the government, right? Everybody knows it, but like nobody will say we need to let people transact their government business in secret because it's just 
like literally all other human endeavors. You just cannot do it in public, and they don't. So, like, the visitor logs to the Treasury Department are public. So I have on occasion met with people there who insist on meeting at the coffee shop across the street so it doesn't show up in some cockamamie story, like, two years later that, like, oh, we, we talked to this guy, and then he wrote this. Because, like, I don't know. It, it drives me nuts, but it is also really, 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 really hard as a not just as a politician, but as a journalist to make the case against transparency, because like obviously I would like Hillary Clinton to release the transcripts of her Goldman Sachs speeches. Like I, I want to read them. <laughs> I'm a curious person. I would like to write the stories about them. Like I want to know what's going on. And like that's a, it's not our role as journalists. I can have a special thing because I don't like phone calls where I can say, well, I wish they could email me off the books. <laughs> but like in general, it's just it's our line of work to say that we should know more stuff, that it is good that we found out about Obama's deals with the pharmaceutical industry, that like we wish we knew more about what conversations the Fed had with banks and what guarantees they were given. Like when you step back from it, like a long way back, when you look at like the story of how the Civil Rights Act got passed, right, it does not seem like LBJ's activities would have withstood the light of day. And it also doesn't seem bad that he like made some shady deal about a bank merger to get a Texas newspaper to endorse civil rights legislation to help get some whatever, whatever, whatever done. I think that's just a really tough problem. And like we need to some extent like politicians to stand up to journalists and be like, <laughs> fuck you guys. Like, you know, it's not important that you know. And people hate journalists almost as much as politicians. Yeah, there's this one um, paragraph in the Roush paper that kind of stood out to me. What both of you were talking about and kind of why Roush and the people on this side like, have such a tough time making their case where he writes about, you know, the realist believes in the reality of trade-offs. We live in a world of second and often third best choices. And in order to govern, one must make decisions and engage in practices which look bad up close and are hard to defend in public, but which nonetheless seem to be the best alternative at the time. And that sounds like totally reasonable. Like it gets to like, you know, what you were saying about making deals in the back room that like pursue some sort of civil rights legislation. It's also like a terrible slogan. Like oh, we're the, the second or third best option for government because the first <laughs> best option just isn't realistic. The one that you like, that's just not going to happen. So we have this realistic thing that you don't really like, but it's much more plausible. Or like, how are you going to get that done, Bernie? And then the answer is <laughs> by cutting some deals that won't withstand scrutiny. But, but this is why it's also not just a journalist issue. It is not like politicians are banned together get to do this because for them it is a very useful cudgel whenever they don't like anything. Barack Obama ran for office saying that all his healthcare negotiations would be on C-SPAN, if people remember that. And that was partial reaction to like the fury Democrats felt about the Bush administration's secret backroom consultations with the energy industry for their energy bill. And the continuous cycle of this is that whoever did not get what they wanted in a deal they go in and they use the ways in which the deal was transacted secretly or in which deals that don't withstand scrutiny were made as a way of discrediting the deal. And they both do it. And then when they get in, in order to satisfy what they argued to their supporters, they have to put in place a bunch of measures, big or small, to show they're going to be more transparent. And then they end up trying to get around the, the measures they themselves created. And it just creates this like weird cycle. But, but it is a place where uh, I think politicians themselves are very culpable because 
the exact same Republicans currently going apeshit over Hillary Clinton's emails are not going to love when it is, you know, their secretary of state or their whatever, pick your senior administration official who it turns out was sending too many emails off of a private email address. And they're going to feel that, you know what, that's just how you have to transact some of that business. But because this stuff is only a good argument in the negative, because it is only a good argument when you're saying how bad it is that this happened, what happens at any given time is that the party in power making these deals is not defending conceptually and structurally the way they made these deals and is certainly not trying to legislate the Presidential Records Act out of existence. And the party out of power is often somewhat irresponsibly demanding a level of transparency they don't ever want to offer themselves, but because they care more about getting back into power than about you know long-term questions of how American politics is governed, they end up creating expectations they need to partially fulfill when they come into office. So they add a couple more regulations for transparency on and they, they did their work and just over time we keep going in this direction. I mean, again, that's why the language, the rules, like it's why what I think is good about this paper is that he just really points out like the feedback loop we're in where I think impulses that are correct and true in American politics have probably gone too far. Yeah, but, you know, it is also a question of institutional design that, I mean, I, I think for good reason, people are reluctant to say this political mechanics that we have inherited from the late 18th century are simply not workable in modern conditions. But one thing like Rausch cannot do throughout this paper is be like, here in this other advanced country, X, where political and economic and social conditions are even better than the United States, like they achieved that by being much more relaxed about corruption. If you want to look at places internationally that are closer to the old machine politics of the United States, you wind up looking at Italy, Greece, maybe Mexico, right? Countries that are at a much lower level of, of economic development than the United States. If you look at any countries that sort of outdo us on human development indicators, uh, Nordic countries, New Zealand. Zealand. You also find countries that do better on scores of transparency and, and lack of corruption. And it's because they have shifted to political institutions that function in a way that is consistent with a lack of corruption, a highly educated, knowledgeable citizen base, uh, other kinds of good things like that. Now, there's no good way to get from here to there exactly that, that I can see short of uh, violence. So, you know, I don't think that's a great solution, but I do think it's also worth being above board that there's like a, a just a little bit of like a conceptual cul-de-sac we're in here where the United States has, I think, as a society sort of outgrown institutions that were set up from a period of time when there were no electronic communications, uh, when most people could not read, things like that. But we have no way of talking about the idea that we need a, a different kind of, of system. We should do a future episode of The Weeds where we talk about the idea of why we need a different kind of system. All right. All right. More turkeys. Yes. M more turkeys, more corruption. Or less. Matt less more politics. More turkeys, less corruption. Awesome. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of The Weeds. Thanks to uh, Dan Bloom and, and AC Valdez and to our sponsors, Squarespace and Harry's. We'll be back next week. Rate us on iTunes. Send us your email at weedsatbox.com. And check out my new interview podcast, The Ezra Klein Show, which you can find wherever fine podcasts are allowed to be downloaded freely on the internet. Start buying sponsorships. Yeah, you're going to have to <laughs> buy us off for this airtime you're getting. Are we going to get a swap? Is that I thought we were going to do something corrupt in the back in the back oh. room here. Okay, right. Like we were we were going to make this deal not in full hearing of our listeners. All right, let's All right. turn turn the microphone off and we'll make it work. <laughs> <laughs>